to the Gospel of Matthew. Our sermon text this evening comes from Matthew chapter 9. Brief text, Matthew chapter 9, we'll be looking at verses 14 through 17. So let's give good attention to this, the public reading of God's Word, Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 14 until verse 17, the Word of God. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Amen. That's far the reading of God's Word. Let's pray and ask His blessing upon us again. Again, gracious and loving Father, we come to you asking that you would indeed come and bless us as we receive your word again this evening, like seed that falls upon good soil. Grant that we might receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save our souls. Please anoint the lips of the preacher and the ears of the hearers and work powerfully by it, we pray, to sanctify all of us as your people for the glory of your great name in our, in our lives. Father, we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this evening I'd like for you to imagine, imagine what it would be like to be invited uh, to be guests, invited as guests at a royal wedding. Maybe think of uh, Prince William, since likely he's next, will be the next king over all of the United Kingdom, right? Imagine if you'd been back there in... Uh, was it April of 2011 at West, Westminster Abbey where he was married to Catherine Middleton and you were privileged to be sitting right there amidst the royal family. How would you conduct yourself? I don't know about you, but I'd be scared to death that I'm going to do something to completely embarrass myself, right? Certainly I would feel unworthy of such honor. I'd be thinking deeply about what kind of behavior would be expected of me. How do I conduct myself in this kind of context? What kind of, what kind of conduct is appropriate, right? Well, in some ways, I would submit to you that that's kind of what our, that's what our passage is about this evening. What kind of conduct was appropriate for those who were participating in that unique event of the arrival of the bridegroom king, the Messiah? How were the disciples to conduct themselves in that particular context. In our text, we see that they were being criticized by the disciples of John the Baptist. Interesting, kind of sad and strange, really, to see the disciples of John the Baptist kind of siding with the Pharisees and coming and criticizing the disciples of Jesus as they asked that question, why do we and the Pharisees fast while your disciples do not fast? But we see that the That question became an occasion for Jesus to address not only what kind of behavior was appropriate for his disciples during this this time 
of his, uh, this unique time, his time on earth with them, but I think it was a, uh, an occasion to speak more generally of the, the, uh, the, the greatness of the event, the arrival of the kingdom, and the greatness of him, the messianic king, an occasion for him to speak about how his arrival and his presence was to have significant implications regarding how his kingdom people were now to conduct themselves. That included even what, what changes might be appropriate in view of his coming and his, his presence. Our message this evening is this. In answering why his disciples were not fasting or mourning, Jesus, Jesus teaches us about redemptive historically context-appropriate conduct. Now, children, what on earth do I mean when I speak of redemptive historically context-appropriate conduct? Well, it's kind of a fancy way of saying that Jesus is teaching us here about, about understanding what time it is and where we are and about, behavior, about behaving properly according to that understanding. And as an example, well, here we are. Where are we right now? We're here in church. We're with God's people. We're worshiping Him. This is not a time for running around and jumping and, and playing games and so forth. No, this is a time where we act properly. We enter into that worship, right, with God's people. Well, as God's people, we are we're to understand the time and the place, that is, where and when we are in history, redemptive history, and how we are to therefore conduct ourselves appropriate, appropriately. This evening I have just, just two main points. First, we will consider that the time of Christ's earthly ministry was not a time for fasting and mourning, but for rejoicing in His presence. And then secondly, we'll consider that He, Jesus, had not come simply to patch up the old but he had come to usher in the new. So consider our first point then, Christ's earthly ministry, not a time for, for fasting and mourning, but for rejoicing in his presence. I'm being very intentional this evening about my use of that word mourning, uh, to mourn or mourning. Note that Jesus was, was asked about fasting, verse 14, and he answered with the word mourn in verse 15. Interesting that this is of the three Gospels which seem to record the same event, Matthew's is the only one which uses that word mourn. Matthew seems to like to talk about mourning. He uses that word mourn more than any other Gospel. We think about how it's used in, in the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. I think it's good for us this evening to think a little bit about mourning, mourning in our lives. But whether or not fasting entails mourning, whether, there's not, whether or not there's always mourning that's involved with fasting, it seems to be at least often an important component of fasting. And it's an important part of the reason that on one level why fasting would have been inappropriate in this particular context. Now, in fairness to the the disciples of John the Baptist, you may recall what was going on in this context. They, they, they had good reason to feel like they ought to be mourning. Their beloved, their beloved teacher, John, was in prison at this time. Perhaps their fasting 
involved some significant mourning that fact. Perhaps they even struggled to understand why wouldn't the disciples of Christ, why wouldn't Jesus himself uh, not join them in their fasting and mourning the imprisonment of their beloved teacher? Perhaps there were other less godly motives at play. You know, we know of another occasion, John chapter 3, where uh, it seems that some of the disciples of John were, were envious. They were envious that people were going now to Jesus and the disciples and being baptized by them rather than by John. Recall that in, in, in that context, uh, Jesus, or, or rather John himself, taught his disciples not to be envious of Jesus. Remember what he said. He's come and it's my joy, my joy to see Jesus now increase while I decrease Maybe his disciples hadn't learned that lesson very well. Something else we should mention is that clearly Jesus did not come in order to abolish the practice of fasting. He makes that clear earlier in chapter 6 when he speaks of what fasting should look like for his disciples. So he certainly isn't teaching that, 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 that his disciples should never fast. Some have suggested, this is a point made by uh, R.T. France is one example. Some have suggested that perhaps the practice of John's disciples was like the fasting of the, the Pharisees and different than that of Christ's disciples in this way, that John's disciples had a regular routine of fasting. It seems that the, the Pharisees did that. They, they fasted twice per week. Luke 18 verse 12 tells us that. Now, that went, went beyond anything required by God's law, by the way. And so, in contrast with that, the suggestion is that, that, that the fasting which Christ would commend to his disciples was an occasional fasting rather than routine fasting. I'd be very careful saying that because I'm certainly not suggesting that if anyone here has a practice of regular fasting, that, that, that that's wrong. I'm not suggesting that at all. Uh, J.C. Ryle uh, helps, has some helpful words commenting on those words of Jesus back in chapter 6, verse 16. And they're helpful words in, in, about, in addressing the question of whether or not to fast. I would also suggest that they're helpful in regarding uh, 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 addressing the question of whether to fast by routine or simply to uh, fast on occasion. Ryle wrote that we should do so, quote, or that to do so should be left to personal discretion and that it should be, quote, a matter in which everyone must be persuaded in his or her own mind. He also wrote, one thing only must never be forgotten. Those who fast should do it quietly, secretly, and without ostentation. That is, not for show. And as to that point as we look at our text this evening, that I think we can say this, that even if Jesus' disciples had been called to fast during his earthly ministry, if they were doing so according to the the command of Christ, the disciples of John the Baptist should have had no idea whether or not they were fasting, right? You see the point? Jesus could rightly have said here, why would you presume to know whether or not my disciples are fasting if they do fast, they will be fast, fasting not to be seen by you, but to be seen by my Father who is in heaven. But Jesus makes what I believe is really an even more important point here. He makes, I think, something of a redemptive historical 
distinction here. We know for sure that the ministries of John the Baptist and that of Christ were really of two phases as God's plan was being carried out in redemptive history. So John's ministry was in that, that period of preparing, awaiting the, the arrival of the kingdom. John's ministry was sort of the, the culmination of that period of, of longing for its coming, preparing for the Christ who was about to be revealed. And I think we can say that in, in one sense it was more appropriate in that context. Appropriate to that time was fasting and mourning. Here the nation should have been mourning their sin which had brought the kingdom to its tragic end in terms of its old covenant expression. So on one level there were some, some notable differences between the way in which John lived and ministered and the way in which Jesus lived and ministered. One difference I think can be reflected in the words of Christ in chapter 11 in verses 18, 19. Jesus is going to say, John came neither eating nor drinking. And then he'll say, by contrast, the Son of Man came eating and drinking. Christ's opponents would, uh, would come to a wrong conclusion about why that was, right? But nonetheless, Jesus was saying that that's actually true. He ate and drank in ways that John did not, not because he was a, a drunkard or a, a glutton as they accused him. Of course not. But I believe our text teaches us that, that as, as John's ministry concluded and Christ had arrived and was now present, that, that, that part of what we see going on in this text is that this was a special time. This was a time for rejoicing, rejoicing in the truth that the Lord had come as the bridegroom who would now receive his people as his bride. God was now in their, before their eyes fulfilling the promises made to the prophets, wonderful promises. Think of Hosea chapter 2, verse 19, and I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. Or Isaiah 62, 4 and 5, you shall no more be termed, for, be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, my delight is in her, and your land married. Note, note the language there, the, the language of, of rejoicing. It says, for the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. This was a cause for rejoicing. And so, of course, Jesus was here claiming, rightly claiming, I am the fulfillment of these promises. I am the great, great bridegroom. I am the Messiah King. Brothers and sisters, was that not cause for great rejoicing and glorying in the holy name of God? If the Lord calls us to, to, oh, to be rejoicing in the wondrous works that He has done, certainly that should include the wondrous work of Him appearing, arriving, coming into the world to be present with us. This was like a great, glorious, extended wedding celebration. You know, in those days, and in, in that culture, of course, Weddings could last for many days. And it was not a time for fasting. It was not a time for mourning. No, there was joy and celebration and all of the wedding festivities. And, and that, that's why it was such a fitting image then to represent 
the kingdom of heaven. And with the coming of Christ, the kingdom had come. So really it was sad and it was wrong for these disciples of John to be bothered by, the, by whatever joy and celebration that, that, that was being experienced by the disciples of Christ. And it was inappropriate for them to suggest that this should be for them a time of fasting and mourning. Back to the, the Prince William wedding illustration. If you could imagine if you were a guest at that wedding. Imagine if then you were invited to that, that lunchtime reception at, at Buckingham Palace. Imagine if they were coming in and serving all of these fine foods. But when they came to serve you, you were to say to them, no thank you, I, I'm fasting today. I'm fasting. I think anyone who heard you say that might, might say, what? Have you lost your mind? You chose today to fast? Do you realize where you are? Do you realize the magnitude of the event? You're in the presence of royalty, serving you royal food. You don't refuse their food. And the problem with these disciples of John was, was, was not so much that it was such a terrible question to ask about fasting, right? It would have been fine to, to ask Jesus questions about fasting. I think the problem really was that they were failing to perceive the magnitude, the greatness of the event unfolding before their eyes, the greatness of the person who was in their midst. And that's what I want us to think about as we move to our our second, our last point this evening. The The supremacy of Christ, they should have perceived His greatness. They should have been joining into the the, the joy, the celebration, rejoicing in the presence of Him, the great bridegroom, Messiah King, who is coming to receive His people. Jesus made it clear there would be a time for mourning, a time for, for fasting. But I want us to think more about that in connection with our second point, which is that Jesus had come. Jesus had come not simply to patch up the old, but to make all things new. We see in verse, verses 16 and 17 that he made this point. He made this point by making use of some metaphors from, from uh, things which were very common in his day. So everyone, everyone knew about mending garments, it seems, and everyone knew about making wine. In making or mending garments, they would have to full the new cloth, full that new cloth to full was a a process of removing the natural oil and gum and, and bleaching the cloth. It would, it would shrink the cloth up and make it ready for use. Well, everyone knew that it would never work to take an unfold, unshrunk piece of cloth to patch up a hole in an old garment. With time, that, that new material would shrink and it would simply tear the hole and make it even worse. Jesus also spoke about wine. In those days, they would take wine and they would put it into animal skins while it was fermenting. Now, after time, eventually those skins would would become old and they would crack. I presume you'd want to drink that wine before that happened, right? And so, so when you made new wine, of course, you would never take old skins that are close to cracking and put that new wine in there. Surely they would crack and you'd end up losing all of the wine. What's our Lord's point? In bringing his kingdom, he had not come, this is important, Jesus had not come as a piece of new cloth to be used to patch up and to kind of give something of, of a minor, minor repair to the old covenant. No, Jesus had come as 
new wine only, only to be poured in the new wineskins of the new covenant, not into the old wineskins of those old ordinances of the old covenant. Jesus, of course, is certainly not not come to conform to any practices which were based on human traditions rather than on God's commandments, even God's old covenant commandments. But even more than that, you see, he had come not even to preserve those legitimate practices of the Old Testament which were intended to be temporary and to pass away. You know, Jesus very very well could here, he could have rebuked the disciples of John and the Pharisees for not properly following the law and for perhaps instead setting up legalistic rules about fasting, rules which, which went beyond God's law. We know that Jesus did do just that, didn't he? On other occasions, he so rebuked them for perverting the law of God. But here, the focus was on the new. His point seems to be that it would, be not, it would not be right to expect that you could just take Jesus, you could take Christ and sort of conform him to the old covenant ordinances. This text really speaks to the, the great, greatness, the, the greaterness, the supremacy of Christ and the newness of the age into which he was bringing God's people with the arrival of the kingdom, with the dawning of the new covenant. Jesus was bringing a greater, a fuller revelation of God's grace. With the inauguration of the new covenant, there would be appropriate changes to which God's people would be called and privileged joyfully to conform. We know, of course, that the the ceremonial law would pass away. There would no longer be sacrifices of animals. Once Jesus had offered himself, the Lamb of God is that perfect once-for-all sacrifice for our sins. Uh, the meals like the Passover meal and other uh, feasts would pass away and we would, we'd, we'd now be observing the Lord's Supper and so forth. And thinking about all of this, we can appreciate the rich, redemptive historical context in which Christ and his person, his work, was revealed. But this had huge practical implications. It is a huge practical application for us this evening in terms of how we are to think of Christ, how we are to receive Him, how we are to follow Him in our own lives. Friends, how do you view Jesus this evening in your own life? Do you see Him as, as someone who kind of comes alongside you and does a little bit of patchwork in your life? Do you see Jesus as one who sort of comes and he fixes what's broken, comes and fixes you up a little bit, helps you to be a slightly better you, brings some improvement in your life as your life continues to be a life which is basically oriented towards yourself, right? Living as, as if you are the supreme one, a life of living for yourself, pursuing your own desires, your own purposes, your own plans, your own glory. I think we all know that that's not how we're called to view Christ, but we all tend to do that, don't we, in one way or another in our own lives. And is that not basically what what the disciples of John were doing, basically saying, we have our own established patterns of fasting. Jesus, you and your disciples need to come and you need to conform to our ways And Jesus was basically saying, uh, it doesn't work that way, right? To the extent that you and I are doing that at times in our lives, we we need to hear Jesus tonight say, it doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. I am the great one. I am the supreme one. I am the, the great 
bridegroom, Messiah, King, and if you are able to see it, if you are able to perceive my greatness and my glory, you will not seek to conform me to your ways. You will conform to me and my ways. When we understand that, we understand that that Christ is not one who comes along and simply patches up the old. He's the one who completely does away with the old and he creates the new, the old self-centered, self-serving you. He puts to death and he raises up the new in union with Christ and his death, his resurrection. He raises the new you whose life is in him and it's a new you whose life is to be oriented around him, his glory, his supremacy, a life which is given to the the pursuit of his glorious desires, his purposes, his plans. You know, there are so many who who misunderstand the gospel, don't they? They they sort of see the call of the gospel as kind of like this. You know, they're they're walking in this direction and then they hear about Jesus and they and they say, yeah, you know, I'll receive Jesus. And, but they continue walking in the same direction they were. And it's kind of like, well, uh, you know, I, if I need a little bit of joy in my life, Jesus will give me a little bit of joy. If I need a little more peace, I'll get a little bit of peace from Jesus. They've not understood repentance. The call of the gospel is that those who are walking in this direction are called by Christ. And it involves a 180, doesn't it? We turn and we follow him. We surrender our lives to him, the beauty of the gospel is that the bridegroom himself, the Lord Jesus, in his coming, in his living, in his dying, in his rising, he has given himself wholly for us, and now he calls us, he calls us to give ourselves wholly unto him, that we might be his. He gives us not just, not just, not just uh, patches of cloth to be sewn over our, our old filthy garments, No, Christ comes. He takes away our sins. He takes away our old filthy garments and He clothes us in those new new robes of His own righteousness. He makes us to drink of the new wine of the new covenant in His own blood. He gives us life. And He gives us life such that we might live for Him even until He takes us home unto glory. And we long for that day. We long for that day. We, we, we see that in our text, don't we? It's in, in, in that hope of being in the presence of Christ that we gladly surrender to Him as Lord over our lives, Lord over everything, and that certainly includes our fasting and our mourning. As I mentioned, it's, it's not that there would be no more fasting in the new covenant age. Look again up at verse 15 where Jesus says, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. What is it that's in view here? It's been argued different, different things here. Perhaps this is a reference to the, the crucifixion and the burial of Jesus. You know, his, his disciples would be mourning when, when, when they'd crucify him. They'd be mourning until that third day when they learned that he had been risen from the dead. Or perhaps this is a reference to the time after his resurrection and his ascension once Jesus had had returned to the Father and was no longer physically present with them. They would miss him. They would long for him. They would be saddened that he was no longer with them. Surely then fasting and mourning would be appropriate and it would certainly enlarge 
part be done always with a great longing to be with him again. Christians, I think we can all agree on that this evening. We, we may have, I don't know, maybe we have different practices in terms of how we view fasting and how we might practice that uh, fasting and even, even mourning, right? But we all agree that our fasting and our mourning should be Christ-centered fasting and mourning. It should be in view of the fullness of the revelation of Him, His coming, His dying, and rise, His rising. And most importantly, I'd say this, as with all of the Christian life, all Christian obedience, it should be done in the hope of being with Him, the hope of His, his coming again. We fast and we, we mourn with a longing to be with Christ, to be with Him in glory. Is that your desire? Is that true of you this evening, dear Christian? What causes you to mourn in your life? There's plenty to mourn about, right? We think of all of the, all of the sorrow, the pain. I'm sure you've endured much mourning and all that you've been through as a congregation in the recent weeks and months. Much to mourn about. Maybe you're mourning the loss of, of a loved one this evening. We all mourn all of the evil in a world that's in rebellion against God, but we need not look out at the world to see it. We see it in our own hearts, and we should be mourning the sin that we see in ourselves. Mourn indeed, fast and mourn as appropriate and as the Lord calls us. But let our mourning always be unto Christ, and let it always be mourning in wonderful hope that Jesus is coming back, He's coming again, and He's coming not simply to patch things up a bit, is He? He's coming to put an end to all of the, the sorrow and the misery of this sin-cursed world. He's coming to make all things new as He brings the kingdom in all of its glory. He's coming again that we might be with Him. Has He not promised us? The sorrow filled the heart of His disciples when He told them that He was going to be departing from them. But He said to them in John chapter 14, verse 3, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. He's coming again that our mourning may be no more as he wipes away every tear from our eyes. And so we say, come, come, Lord Jesus, come. Friends, we don't, we don't have to imagine this evening that we've been invited to a royal wedding. We, we, we've been inviting to the wedding uh, not only have we been invited to the, the, the wedding of the great king, but we are participants in that great wedding. We are the bride. We are the bride of the great bridegroom, Messiah, King. You and I weren't there during that unique time when Jesus was present with his disciples on earth. But in union with him, it's our story. It's all about who we are in Christ. And it's the story of what will soon be when our bridegroom returns from heaven in glory, and He takes us to be with Him forever and ever. And friends, that will be far better than anything ever experienced by the disciples of Jesus when He was with them, and they were rejoicing in His presence on earth. And though He is now separate from us, He is with us by the Holy Spirit. So even while we mourn, we rejoice, sorrowful, but always rejoicing, the Bible says. And even now, we, as we rejoice, the, the Spirit sanctifies us and, and it makes us to be spiritually beautiful as He prepares us, His bride, for that great day. So, 
in your mourning, in your fasting, and in all you do, live as those beautiful people who belong to Christ, whom God is making you to be. May God help us so to live. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray that you would so work in us, your people. We bless you, O Lord God. I thank you, Heavenly Father, for giving us your Son to be our Savior, to be our Bridegroom, Messiah, King. And Father, we ask this evening that, 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 that he might uh, come even now working in our hearts and, and become all the more precious to us and supremely glorious to us even this night. Work by your Spirit, Lord God. Cause your Word to fill us and to dwell in our hearts that it might bring forth in our lives that, that fruit by which you will be glorified by the grace of Christ Jesus, our blessed Lord and our Savior, in whose name we do pray. Amen. Well, let's rejoice together in God's blessings uh, as we turn once more to our God in song, turning in the Trinity hymnal to number 69, a song of praise, Lord, with glowing heart. I'd praise you. Let's stand together and sing number 69.